0: Each year, more than 12 million people will hear the same three devastating words. You have cancer. I know what it's like to hear those three words. I'm Lee Silverstein, a survivor of pediatric kidney cancer and stage four colon cancer. One day I said to my wife, Linda, that I hated the fact that I had cancer. And she looked at me and said, no, sweetheart, we have cancer. This transformed the way I looked at cancer because every one of us is touched by it in some way, patients and survivors, caregivers, and medical professionals, and we all have a story to tell. On each episode, we share those stories to inform, inspire, and provide hope to all of us who are affected by cancer to remind us that we are not alone. Welcome to We Have Cancer. Welcome to episode 184 of We Have Cancer. Thank you so much for joining me. An interesting topic that we're going to cover today, and for some maybe an uncomfortable topic, but one that is critically important, and that is the topic of death and dying. My guest this week is Dr. Jim Demain. His last name is spelled lowercase d-e capital m-a-i-n-e. Dr. Demain is a pulmonary and critical care doctor, and he is the author of the book Facing Death, Finding Dignity, Hope, and Healing at the End. You can also follow Dr. Demain via his blog at his website at endoflifeblog.com, as well as following him on Twitter at md. Very interesting conversation uh, around... You know, more importantly, where we started was, why would a practicing physician write a book about death and dying? And I think you'll find the response to that question quite interesting, as well as the rest of our conversation. So join me now for my conversation with Dr. Jim Demain. Jim, welcome to the We Have Cancer podcast. I really appreciate you joining me today. And, you know, the first thing that struck me as I was reading up on your background and your book titled Facing Death Finding Dignity, Hope, and Healing at the End is why did a pulmonary care doctor decide to write a book on death?
1: That's a tough question, but a good question. I was trained in an area when we didn't really talk about death. This was back in the 60s. We did not mention it to families. We were even told, don't use the word cancer. And um, we tended to avoid it. And uh, like, you know, it was always the elephant in the room, but nobody approached it directly. And over my career, I first went the way of internal medicine, infectious disease, tuberculosis. But then I really got interested in lung disease and Got my boards in pulmonary medicine, and then went on um, into critical care because critical care units came along in the late '60s, and then uh, we didn't even have critical care certification until the late '80s. So I would commonly go into the ICU and and become attending for a patient where they had very advanced disease, um, and some patients were clearly terminal, but The family was conflicted about withdrawing life support, uh, even though it was a fairly futile situation with, you know, tumor had spread to the brain and all over the body and and they were infected and blood pressure was low. And yet we kept going with more and more technology. So I really became interested, okay, how do we let the patient know that they have the right to make a determination about the kind of care they would want at the end of their life? And how well do they understand the technologies that can we we apply? And so I got interested in the whole field of advanced care planning so that we could prevent the overuse of technology, or I should say, apply the appropriate use of the ventilators and CPR and heart shocks and Kidney dialysis and all the kinds of things that we can do at the end of life, sometimes actually prolonging death rather than allowing it to occur naturally. And of course, we didn't even have hospice when I started out. So I've seen all these things evolve. And I I worked at Group Health Cooperative at Puget Sound, which is now in the Kaiser system. But we developed a program called Your Life, Your Choices and invited everybody when they hit 60, 65 into classes to talk about advanced care planning. And so, we, you know, we talked about death, of course, but it was more people I would often say, I'm not so scared of death. It's the dying, it's the getting there, it's the suffering, it's the leaving my family, it's not being surrounded by my loved ones. I want to die at home. Can I die at home? All those kinds of questions would come up. And so we really worked with people on, on, Trying to have those conversations, you know, what matters most? And then how do you you write that down? How do you determine that? And how do you communicate with your doctor? So that was kind of, I guess, all efforts to, in quotes, have a a good death, if that's meaningful. It sounds like an oxymoron, I know. But uh, have have a good enough death, have a, a death that's aligned with your wishes. And actually, I call that a healing death, one that is... Not healing for you necessarily, but for the loved ones around you and where your wishes are are granted. And that has more of a, a spiritual quality to it, a, a, a sense of peace. It's interesting. And, in, uh, in Johns Hopkins, they've, they've developed a system wide program they call the pause. And when somebody in their intensive care unit, or emergency room dies, uh, they respect the death and they all pause. And they reflect on that person's life and how meaningful it may have been. And then they reflect on each other, what they have offered in terms of care. And it's almost like a a little spiritual service that they have the time of death to reflect on it. So those kinds of things interest me. I I like to talk in the community and and be interviewed by people like you and, and um I finally, I'm 82 years old now. I said I better write this down in a book. So, <laughs> so I, but my book is mainly a book of stories. It's not kind of a how-to book. It gives examples of, of um, kind of end of lives that I saw, um, and and tried to almost little lessons with each each vignette. But they were stories that I don't know if it's post-traumatic stress or what. But they were in my head. Uh, and I simply couldn't forget them. People marveled. Well, how can you remember that detail? And I said, you know, if you'd been there, you'd remember it too because these are sometimes very dramatic and sometimes painful, sometimes peaceful uh, experiences that doctors in critical care go through.
0: Sure. I know one of the stories that touched me was the story of a patient with advanced COPD, Larry yeah, and what touched me was after he died that his sons reached back out to you to say thank you, and and how out of the ordinary that must be, you know, when you think about the how what the end result was, you know, he did die.
1: Yeah, it's it's a, I've collected these notes. I think I mentioned in the book, and and uh, not for self praise or anything like that, but but just to recall those moments and how a physician's attitude and body language and listening skills are are also important. You know, when you have a family conference and you try to measure how successful that conference has been, what comes out really strongly is families feel it's most successful when they have the doctor listen more and talk less. Uh, They want to be heard uh, about you know, discussing what their loved one may or may not want and make sure that they're clearly understood. And so, yeah, I over over the years, you know, people were very kind and would write bright notes. One very touching one I got is when I walked into a patient very far uh, advanced lung disease on a ventilator, uh, unconscious, um, was really not doing well. And we had, there were four, five, six patients Family members in the room clustered around the bed, all very anxious. And I, I just kind of ignored them when I walked in. I, I went over to the bedside, got my stethoscope out, started listening to the patient and, and talking to him at the same time, saying, you know, your loved ones are here. I know you're surrounded by lots of love and hope, and I hope you can hear me at some level. And this wasn't theater. This was really the way I felt. And But the family was just kind of blown away by it, and they, they wrote me just a beautiful note of appreciation of, of kind of the caring attitude that I could show at that moment. So I, I learned something
2: from the feedback I get from families from those kinds of notes. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the We Have Cancer Show. As always, thank you so much to Lee for providing this awesome opportunity to spread more awareness for our campaign kids. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brody Nicholas, and I have the honor of leading campaign one at a time. This month, we are sponsoring Charlie, a four-year-old cancer patient from San Jose, California. Charlie is so gentle, caring, and is always smiling. She is currently battling medulloblastoma and has gone through so much already, including chemotherapy, multiple inpatient hospital stays, and even brain tumor removal. After all she's been through, we want to help Charlie and her family make more memories together outside of the hospital. That's why we're on a mission to raise $10,000 this month, to send Charlie and her family to Disney World for a much needed vacation. You can learn more about Charlie's campaign and learn how you can help by visiting wehavecancershow.com forward slash Charlie. Thank you so much for listening and helping us spread more good for kids like Charlie.
0: Be sure to stick around to the end of this episode to learn how you can get your rear in gear. But why is it, do you think, Jim, that what you do is more kind of out of the ordinary?
1: I hope it's becoming more ordinary. They're they're really, you know, we're really still not good in medical school. We go on an obstetrical rotation, beginning of life, maybe six weeks, and learn all about that but we don't go, you know, well, we might have a rotation in oncology, but it's not long enough. And we don't really learn how to give news to patients that have a serious illness, whatever that is, and how to do it and how to do that successfully. So there are really attempts now. There's a, there's a an app actually for the iPhone for doctors. It's called Vital Talk. Uh, it's one you can download on your iPhone. And it's very well done. It's out of the University of Washington, but it coaches doctors on on how to listen, how to approach uh, this kind of discussion. Uh, and there's a, a COVID-specific part of that, even during this COVID epidemic. But um, there's uh, a Dr. Tony Back that has worked with uh, uh, oncology trainees uh, and other physicians. Physicians can be taught this, for sure. It's a communication skill. Some people come by it more naturally than others. But we are heading in the right direction, but we've got a long way to go, Lee. I, I, I think that um, oncologists sometimes will, even when somebody's dying, they w- will not step in and say, you know, maybe it's time to, to think about hospice here. And But some people will feel abandoned at, at that point, and, and the, the doctors are kind of Thinking, well, I, I should never abandon this patient. But, you know, when you shift somebody into hospice, you can say, why don't you just go have this discussion and, uh, then come back and see me and let's discuss it some more. So you're not getting this, uh, loss of care. Actually, with hospice, I would really love to see kind of a pre-hospice thing while people were still on their aggressive chemotherapy or whatever but they could go in and have discussions with the hospice so they know what it's all about and then they can make a better decision for themselves and you know in discussion with their healthcare team about gee you know maybe all these treatments are failing maybe i'm just too sick from all this chemotherapy um maybe it's really time i should have a discussion and it's it's always hard to it's an ex- existential shift you know sure. if, if, when am, when am i going to stop the aggressive treatments? And when am I going to shift more toward comfort care? And that must be one of the most difficult things for cancer patients to face.
0: I'm sure it is. And and the common theme that I've heard in talking to, to people uh, is that more often than not, the thought is is that people wait too long to consider hospice as an option. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I wish that Medicare would develop a system where you can go into hospice while you're still trying uh, some of your therapies. You know, there's still hopes that you might turn around, but you you need the level of hospice care. You might need a a nurse that visits or a hospital bed or spiritual care or those, those kinds of things that hospice offers and also medication coverage. There's significant healthcare Financial benefits when you do go into hospice. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, a lot of people go in too late. You know, the last three days um, occurs. But actually, we're getting better at hospice. More and more people with with cancer, more than fifty percent now, have had hospice care toward the end of their life. And you know, it's not just giving up; it's acquiring better care and the the data shows that people that go into hospice actually live longer than people that don't uh, because, you know, their anxiety level drops. They they know somebody's out there looking after their symptoms, their pain or suffering, nausea is controlled much better. So those kinds of things are, are important. So I know some programs have looked at earlier entry to hospice while you're still on therapy, but in general, Medicare requires you more to shift to the comfort mode without uh, aggressive intervention you know at the time you go into hospice so it is quite a shift but um yeah you you hate to see it uh, you know in the last day or two of life when you know the hospice team doesn't even know you and and uh, you know everything is up in the air and and they just feel very frustrated and it's, it's not a good experience for for anybody really
0: I find, Jim, that sometimes people confuse, and, and uh, uh, I'm hoping, I'm asking that you kind of put some light on the difference between palliative care and hospice.
1: Right. Palliative care, it's a specialty uh, that actually comes after you specialize in usually internal medicine or oncology or uh, sometimes surgery can go into palliative care or anesthesia. Uh, It really means relief of suffering. That's what palliation means. Uh, So these specialists can work with non-hospice and hospice patients. Uh, They're mostly hospital-based, but some clinics are uh, allowing these physicians to come in, and there still aren't enough of them. There's palliative care centers for excellence in multiple um, big university centers around the country, but it's not spread out very well into rural areas as yet. But these physicians don't specialize in an organ like the liver or the lung or the heart. They look at you in a holistic way. Um, they look at, at, you know, where you are in your illness. They look at your care plan. I mean, are all the specialists really talking to each other and are, are they clear about what you, each other are doing? And so they help to coordinate your care, pay attention to you and your whole social network, and focus on your symptoms. You know, are you having pain? Let's see what we can do more about that, or nausea or anxiety, you know. So obviously, they do work with hospice physicians, and some hospice hospice physicians are palliative care specialists as well. There's a fascinating um, woman uh, named, uh, her last name is Zitter, Z-I-T-T-E-R, has written a book uh, about palliative care and intensive care. She actually has her boards both in intensive care medicine and uh, palliative care. So it is especially that's spreading out. I'm really glad to see it because uh, we we need that whole focus uh, when you become very ill because you can get lost bouncing between specialists. And this is kind of the glue that helps to hold that together. So if you're very sick and you don't feel your care is really being coordinated and well understood and your symptoms aren't uh, well controlled, you can certainly request a palliative care consultation, um, particularly if you're in a hospital and your family can request it. And they would come in and just look at that big picture and try to help you.
0: So the key there is, it's more of a coordinated approach to your care, you know, involving you know multiple specialists who can help bring more comfort to your situation.
1: Yeah, they they really look at relieving your suffering in a in a very very holistic kind of way. They're special doctors, and and unfortunately, there's some burnout in that field because you imagine their day to day work is is has a lot of stress,
0: sure now I know you're on the West Coast, and I know over the years there's been you know conversation around I, I don't like the phrase, but we all know it as assisted suicide, but sure. you know in enhancing the you know the death when it appears the options have expired. explain the difference and you touch on this in the book between that fine line between that and just helping a patient die comfortably
1: yeah in in the very first story with larry uh, had very advanced um, emphysema and and he knew it he he wasn't asking for death with dignity or medical aid in dying or assisted suicide he was just panicked because every time his lung disease would flare up he was just terribly uncomfortable and suffering with gasping. He said, I'm like a fish out of water. And so he took me out to lunch and I thought he was going to try to sell me something, but he really wanted to talk about his, his dying. And he just didn't want to suffer at the end. And uh, I told him, well, you know, I'm not Dr. Kevorkian, but there are medications we can use at the end of your life to relieve suffering. And the most common and effective one are the narcotics like morphine. And he said, well, what would that do? And I said, well, it takes away your shortness of breath, gives you a sense of peace, uh, makes you sleepy, and, and just generally makes you comfortable. And he said, well, that's what I'd want. And I said, well, there's a downside to the use of morphine. That is that it can speed up your death by a matter of hours or even days when you're at the end of your life. And he said, you know, that's not important to me. I I really just want to be comfortable and peaceful at the end. And that is acceptable by all medical societies, even the Catholic Church, which is, of course, very much against uh, assisted suicide. If the intent of the physician, and this is common in palliative care now, if your intent is to relieve suffering, but not your intent is not to end a life. And it is a fine line. And people say, well, that's just splitting hairs. But I, I just read a, a book by a, a Catholic theologian who argued very strongly in favor of what we did for Larry, was giving morphine at the end. She said, and it's all based on intent. It's what we call the double effect, and it's actually been debated before the Supreme Court. It it means th- that your intent is to relieve suffering, even if that double effect is to uh, speed up death. Whereas death with uh, dignity or or assisted physician-assisted suicide. And it's now called, more commonly called, medical aid in dying. It's certainly what they call it in Canada and some other places around the world. That means you have to be determined by two physicians under law to be terminal uh, within six months. You have to have made a request Both verbally and written form. And then there's a waiting period, which is variable state by state. Then, um, if the two physicians agree, a prescription can be written for the medication, and then you can keep that on hand. Doesn't mean you have to take it right away. And some people will die with that medication sitting on the shelf. You know, they just want to know it's there and have that option but um in the state of washington now i guess around 1 out of every 400 deaths are related to that there's a national organization called compassionate choices that supports this option i i think with the improvement in hospice and in palliative care and end of life care that maybe that's been driven somewhat by this other option you know we don't don't want to Focus on people who can't have access to the healthcare system and then say, okay, well, we do have this other option for you. And it, it, it sounds pretty gruesome, but actually there's not been much abuse. Uh, California's, their law came on in 2016 and they have an organization of physicians that actually communicate actively with each other on a listserv. And they're very, very careful in following the law and following what they call best practices in this area, and as I mentioned in a book, I've had four acquaintances here where I live that have made that choice. They're usually Caucasian, uh, not necessarily men, but they're usually college educated. They're they're kind of people that have been you know, used to being in control. So I think you know control is very important. Some cultures, like African Americans, uh, Hispanics, very much lower uh, utilization culturally. So uh, the ones that I've seen um, have, um, you know, they've been handled well. It was the individual's choice. They were very much suffering. One lady was 90 years old with an acute form of leukemia. She was not a candidate for any meaningful form of therapy. And and she had lived a very full life. And, and she said, you know, I'm ready, basically. And With the family there, loved ones around, Uh, she took the medication and, and died not too long after that. And the family was so supportive of her care, they actually held an open meeting in the retirement community to discuss that option and her choice. So, you know, I don't know if I would ever use this for myself. My wife and I have talked about it. I don't think you ever really know until you're there. Um, it's not part of your advanced care planning, saying, I'm planning to do this on such sure. and such a date. So, it, it, it uh, and where I've seen people talk about it, they remain conflicted often among their own. They talk back and forth with their left and right, you know, w- within themselves about, you know, what their wishes would be. Cause, you know, the life force is very strong. And we all want to have a full life up until the end. Unfortunately, our life doesn't go like that where we are 100% and then down to zero overnight. You know, very few of us have a heart attack and just simply die these days. We we kind of go down by inches. And I, I think if, if it's handled well, medical assistance in dying will continue to spread. Many states now have it in the legislature. And uh, California was was the big state you know the just a huge influence on on that field and it's sometimes difficult for to find physicians or pharmacies and that kind of thing but compassionate choices is kind of a network where people can can find these things
0: what do you wish that more patients who were in or approaching a terminal state what do you wish they they would know
1: well, they need to know what, what their rights for care are. You know, certainly the right to get a palliative care physician if, if they're suffering. Uh, they have a right to, to go into hospice. It's a, it's a Medicare right these days, uh, where wonderful care can, can be given, uh, and you're not alone anymore. You certainly have a right to have an advocate, uh, durable power of attorney for health care to to speak for you because within the last two weeks of life, most of us are, i'm sorry half of us are not going to be able to speak for ourselves so we really need to have the advocate and I tell people if you're going to fill out just one advanced care form do it for your advocate and and make sure they understand uh what your healthcare wishes are um so those are the those are the key things of course you want to think about leaving a legacy you want to leave love for your family and 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 your loved ones you leave something behind. Um, there are things called ethical wills, uh, where people can, you can Google that, um, blogging under the name of Barry. <laughs> forget his last name. Uh, but he wrote a book on, on ethical wills. My mother, for example, when she, she, we, when she passed away, and I mentioned in, in the book, we were going through her things. And there was just an envelope that said, "In case anything happens to me," and she uh, had written a beautiful love letter uh, to all of us. So you know, think about think about your loved ones, uh, think about your rights, and um, you know, pray for a good and peaceful death.
0: Any different advice for the loved ones?
1: I, you know, I think I, I asked my dad, you know, what what's the answer? He was a family physician. And he's, he just said L-O-V-E, you know. Uh, <laughs> hold, hold their hand, be with them, ask them if, if there's anything that you can do. But I think it's just mainly being there. Play music that they like, put up photographs, pictures, uh, videos of things that they like. And the family always knows best. You know, and in an intensive care unit, I always encourage families – you know, bring, bring in pictures and put them all over the room and play the music that, that, that they like. Um, because ICUs are foreign territories. And unfortunately, that's one of the downsides of, of, um, end of life care is we're using too much intensive care in those last 30 days of life, uh, where, you know, we, people really haven't decided what path they want to take. And so if, if possible, be at home. I think that's where most people want to be, or at least a home like environment and to have your loved ones around you. So that's what I hope for, anyway.
0: (laughs) You and me both. Yeah. Well, Jim, this has been a pleasure. I appreciate the generosity of your time in helping us cover, you know, a topic that many of us just, you know, and I think a lot of it's society based that we just aren't comfortable in talking about. But I think you've opened the door during this conversation for us to perhaps look at death through a different lens and uh to kind of rethink maybe some of our choices uh you know as as we progress through our lives. And I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thanks. You know denial is healthy. It helps us to get on with our lives, but (laughs) Williams Royan said, you know, I know we're all going to die, but I believe an exception will be made in my case. And (laughs) so I I think that helps us to keep going, but you know, we, we know that the mortality figures are still a hundred percent, you know, we haven't escaped that.
0: Very true. (laughs) Very true. And uh, if I could figure out a way, whenever my time comes that as, as part of that, uh, there's some laughter there, too. Let's hope. You know, uh, no, laugh, I'm, I'm, laugh. I'd be good with that. I'd be good.
1: Laughter with that. is great. And it actually, it's good for your immune system. Believe me.
0: Maybe that's why I'm still here. Yeah. <laughs> right, for sure. It's been a pleasure, Jim.
1: Thank you so much. Oh, I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. You as well.
0: The Colon Cancer Coalition has all kinds of wonderful events taking place in the coming months various ways that you can get out and move, whether it's get your rear in gear with a run-walk event or a golf event through the caboose cup, uh, tour de Touche bike rides, lots of ways you can support the amazing work that the Colon Cancer Coalition does to raise awareness and fund local organizations that are making a difference in the world of colorectal cancer. You can check out all of their events by going to wehavecancershow.com forward slash CCC for Colon Cancer Coalition, and you can find an event in your neighborhood. Many are taking place in person, but they virtually, all of them have virtual components as well if that's your preference. So once again, support the Colon Cancer Coalition by going to wehavecancershow.com forward slash CCC. Thank you for listening to We Have Cancer, and thank you to our sponsor, the Colon Cancer Coalition, for your support. You can subscribe to We Have Cancer by visiting Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, or Spotify. And you can find us on social media by visiting our Facebook page at We Have Cancer Show and at We Have Cancer Pod on both Instagram and Twitter.